A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora mai, nā mihi, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ahau. It's great to be back with a new season of stories about science and the environment from around Aotearoa. There are some changes on the horizon for the show this year, but for now, we're getting straight down to business as usual. Except that I usually remind you at the end of the show that we are a podcast to which you can subscribe, but I thought I'd do it at the beginning as well. You can find us on any podcast app as RNZ Science. Why not do it right now? Tonight, we have a bit of a gardening theme going on. Later, we'll hear about the challenges of growing coastal plants such as spinifex and pingao. But first up, I'm off to visit Innermost Gardens in central Wellington. It's a thriving community garden. Over the years, it's been the focus of research by Victoria University of Wellington summer students, the latest of whom was Bliss Greats last summer. I catch up with her supervisor, architect Fabrizio Kika, and keen volunteer and core group member Chris Montgomery. We're up at Innermost Gardens, which is in Mount Victoria in Wellington, just at the very bottom of the town belt. It's a site of an old bowling green, so it's actually not such a small community garden. It's almost two bowling greens size, and we've got a hall in the middle. When we took over the land about 13 years ago, one side of the hall had, was an old marching band practice area, and the other one was the disused ladies' bowling green, which um, until that point they hadn't been able to bowl alongside the men at the next door bowling club. An old marching ground and a bowling club don't sound like the most ideal place to grow vegetables, I have to say. <laughs> no, and we're very lucky that we had some very um, knowledgeable permaculture experts involved in the group initially. So they worked out where the best place was to start in terms of designing a garden. So they went onto the marching field first, made raised beds out of old wooden pallets, untreated wood, and um, set up some compost bins at the entranceway with old pallets again and encouraged as many people from Mount Victoria to drop off their food and vegetable fruit scraps um, so they could then make the compost to build up the soil and kind of keep that permaculture closed loop way of gardening happening. The old bowling green was a whole lot more difficult, it had more um, chemicals in the soil so they started a programme of bioremediation where they used fungi to actually help clean up the toxins that were in the soil and there was a series of testing over two or three years of the soil to make sure that it was clean. Well, you can probably tell by the sound of this interview, it's actually a typical windy Wellington day, but it's not too bad in here. It's quite sheltered, so you've got that in your favour. It really is a nice little microclimate. Sometimes it's a howling 
northerly or southerly on Wellington and you can come up here and actually um, feel as though you've got a little pocket of calm that you can garden amongst. It really is a little oasis, really. So your plants are looking very lush. I can see some broad beans with lovely pinky red flowers there um, and lots of flowers as well in amongst the vegetables. Yeah. So we're not really interested in monocultural model of gardening. We want to have as many beneficial plants and insects and, um, alongside what we do. Well, I'll bring Fabrizio in at this point. So how come you've got involved in this place? Because you're in the School of Architecture. What brings you here? I have been researching production of food in urban areas for the past 10 years. In 2013 to 2014, we had the summer scholarship about community gardens in Wellington. Uh, the following year, we had another one, and we had the break for six years. And last year, there was another summer scholarship. So what did your first couple of summer scholars look at in terms of community gardens and urban agriculture? The first summer scholarship was a little bit like a mapping of all community gardens that we had in Wellington and what they are doing. And the Wellington City Council wants you assess how good they are doing, how productive they are, things like that. But most importantly, I would say that Wellington City Council was looking for a way to promote the, the gardens at the time. So we had to visit them all and see what they were producing and things like that. So what sort of number of urban community gardens are we talking about? Uh, we visit 21 at the time. 21? That's yes. heaps. I had no idea there were so many. Yeah, well, there are some very small ones that we don't know that exist. Um, and we visit some gardens that didn't have any work for years, but they are technically they still exist. And what was the range of productivity in them? How successful were they? Well, this is the thing. When you talk about community garden, we also can talk about the benefits for sustainability. But I think we should look at the social benefits, which is higher than the, the sustainable benefits. right? So the productivity, comparing to what? Comparing between gardens or comparing with a normal farm? So if you compare with a normal farm, it's very low, which is not the case. So you're not looking at an urban farm, you're looking at community garden. So if you look at community gardens, and then you have some gardens that are very productive with a lot of production and diversity, like this one, and some others... They work um, in a different way, with not the same level of organisation that we have in here, and then the productivity is very low. Well, just come back to this garden then, Chris. In terms of the support base for this garden, how does that work and how many people are involved in, in, in doing what sorts of things? We kind of like to look at the garden and the people involved in the garden in the same way that we approach the biodiversity that we want in our plants and our animals. So we kind of want to make it as much of a place where as many people can come we're really lucky that we've got the hall because and that's quite a symbiotic relationship really so some people might come and use the hall for a community activity which uh, the hall gets hired out and um, and then they discover the gardens that way and and through that discovery they decide that they might want to come along to a working bee or um, put go on our waiting list for an allotment uh, or they might just decide that they want to bring up their compost scraps up to the garden. And on uh, the flip side, if people are new to the city or decide that they want to get involved in a community garden, they can find us, come up here and do some work in the garden and then discover the hall. We're also really involved with the Mount Victoria Hub, which is the community coordinator. So we're trying to make it as accessible for as many different people as possible, really. So there's a sense of cooperativeness, there's a sense of belonging, there's a sense of giving back. 
yeah, that's right. And it all it all kind of depends on the people who are in the, we call it the core group, which is our organising committee, and that's kind of self-selected volunteers. We've got no one that's paid here. If I look at the people who are on the core group now, it's very community orientated. So what kind of range of organisation did you come across in your study in terms of how the gardens were organised and how they were working socially? Volunteering is normally good for the community sense, as Chris was mentioning, but often brings problems because people simply drop, right, and the garden doesn't develop, right? But it's hard to find a garden that has this level of um, volunteering that is committed and coming here, but the level of organisation depends on the number of people involved and how they are involved, right? If they are solely volunteers, some people work for the garden, the size of the garden, the location, the accessibility. So all these factors are actually important to determine if the garden is well managed or not. We were quite keen as a um, community garden to look at the being able to quantify a little bit more about that social value that we do bring to the community because currently, you know, we know that we are doing better for this land than if it was a marching lawn. But how do you actually put a dollar value on that? Um, Because we're very aware that in terms of the Wellington City Council, they kind of know that we're here and they point other people in the direction of us if they want advice on community gardens. Yet on their balance sheet, we're just a certain amount of income from renting the hall from them. So we wanted to be able to say, well, actually, you know, you may see us as a one-line item on your on your balance sheet, but actually we bring a whole lot more benefit to the community by just being here and doing what we do. Well, that was the beginning of the discussion that we had with the council around this most recent Summer Scholar work that was done. So tell me about that project. So the Summer Scholar aimed to quantify the social benefits of gardens, right? But we focus on this one as, as a study case. Um, and it was great. So Bliss, which was the student involved in here, she spent good deal of summer here seeing how people work and this garden is very well organized so they quantify things like the people that visit how many people are involved and things like that it's very hard to quantify social benefits let's talk about it through the scientific point of view it's very very hard right Um, it's very hard to measure it's very hard to determine but if you put some effort as we did um, we can find out some some very good stuff right engagement, sense of belonging. In the side, we also find out very important things in terms of sustainability that came along with the participation of people, which is essentially um, related to the composting, right? So they have a very good composting facility here, and that's a very important quantifiable item in terms of environmental improvements. Um, she did a really comprehensive literature review of... Um, yeah studies, published studies and also what's what other um, gardens worldwide were doing. So we've got a good view of how other people are capturing some of these harder to measure aspects. Because social benefits are normal, normally measured by uh, qualitative research, right? Which is an interview, which is an observation study and we scientists are better with quantitative research. We can measure, right? So we try to find a way to see, for example, how many people use the composting, how much they bring to the composting, why they do that, why they walk all the way up here, right? So the summer scholar tried to find that because for us who are interested in improve the environment, develop community gardens, have composting, we need numbers, right? To say, hey, those are the number of people that are actually 
achieved with this project. But let's think together. Let's think about a kilo of organic matter, right? Put in a composting, uh, decomposing for like a four weeks, for example. Imagine the amount of energy that's necessary to transform that organic matter in almost nothing, like a fertilizer, decompose that thing. It's a lot of energy, right? And we can measure that, so that's cool. But how are we going to measure the benefit of someone bringing the thing in here? So that's what the research was about, right? And also talking about what is the benefit of people engaging in this in this garden and volunteering in here. So we're trying to find um, ways to get qualitative research because this is a qualitative data. And Blizz won the best poster, summer scholarship poster in Victoria, which was great. So she was actually very, very good in this process. Yeah, because we can get numbers of people who turn up to the working bees or use the hall and things. So I think it's it's really useful to be able to back up those numbers with that qualitative why, reasons for doing it, motivations and things that people get out of it. And another thing is, this garden is very keen to showcase these numbers, right? So they are producing a website and things like that. And this is very important to encourage other gardens to do the same, right? Because if they don't do that, this kind of formation goes away. So we never know how good they are. In the course of the work we did, we were able to delve into that social aspect of the compost as well. So we, we can measure how many cubic metres that we get of food scraps up into our gardens, into the compost bins pretty easily. We did a survey that went alongside it, so we asked people who were putting compost into, you know, scan a, a code and go to a quick online survey. And we found out that people live within a kilometre, often walk here, they make it part of their daily routine and the reason that they do it, and this was really interesting, the reason that they do it is it's they're doing their bit for climate change was sort of one of the learnings that we got. So we thought, well, actually that affirms what we're doing in terms of this, uh, there's a lot of more wider community buy-in. And it's also good because it confirms what the previous studies say, that people get involved around... 800 to a kilometer max. So that definitely confirms what the science says, right? So this is what the authorities should target, right? We should have more facilities with composting. Spreads, strategically spread all over the city where people can walk to these places, right? And that confirms that if you have facilities around 800 meters, people will come. What's another key takeaway message? Clearly the compost one was a really good one. People have a wrong understanding of composting that's simply through some organic matter there and that that's going to happen doesn't work like that right so they put a lot of effort in here they manage that Chris is responsible to bring brown matter to cover it so it's important to have a well-managed composting because the the point of the composting is avoid organic food to decompose and release methane which is 28 times worse than CO2 right so if you don't have a well-managed composting we're actually doing worse we put a lot of thought into redesigning our compost bins. So the, the original ones that were made of pellets, um, they rotted down within about 10 years. And so a couple of years ago, we got some grants. We designed what we thought was going to be a great usable system for us based on our, our learnings from that previous 10 years. Um, so we've now got six bins in a row. And we have a one bin where people can put their scraps into. And then we make a hot compost in the bin next door. So it's a case of sort of every... These days they're filling up every three or four weeks. We have to open up a new compost bin, a bay, to collect scraps. So every every three or four weeks we're making 
a hot compost pile in one of our bins. And we love getting people's organic matter into the gardens because from that permaculture point of view, it can be reused onto our garden beds to grow more produce, which is really great. We're almost at capacity now in terms of the amount of scraps that people are bringing up. I mean, they've, it's just gone up and up and up in the last probably 18 months. Which is exciting for us, but um, again, becomes a little bit of a draw-on volunteer time. We've designed the bins so that they can be it can be as effective a composting process, but also as light on people hours as possible. Just given that we're in that volunteer situation, the thing with the composting is something that is for me is very important. As I said, it's something that we can measure, right, and has to be well managed. Otherwise, it's not good. So it keeps releasing methane, but not in the landfill, in the garden, right? So I think my personal next step in terms of um, composting is to really certify and confirm that this composting doesn't release methane. They follow everything by the book in terms of um, treat the composting, but scientifically, just say it's 100%, I have to measure, right? So that's what I do. I'm pretty confident that this one is going to be a case that we have a group of very well-organized volunteers that have a great composting that is well-managed and doesn't release methane. So that would be, for me, the full circle in terms of a good community garden. Now, you mentioned urban agriculture before, so where do community gardens fit into the broader picture of urban agriculture? Well, this is a very complex question, right? Because community gardens, for me, have a different role. Right? I think if you are aiming for production of food and re- a dramatic reduction in environmental impact, perhaps community gardens are not the best solution. Right? We are talking about a well, more developed and possibly commercial urban farm. So community gardens for me, this garden taught me that we can find a good thing which is not producing food, is having social benefits and have a good composting. But having said that, you still grow good vegetables. We do grow good vegetables. During the lockdown, it was interesting. There was a lot of people that incorporated these gardens as part of their daily walk. So we found that more people discovered the gardens. And as a result, we had more people coming through just kind of taking what they wanted or needed from the gardens, which is great. We've got sort of one part of the gardens, which is is common beds for, for general picking, and another lot, which is allotments, which we've had to put a bit more... Uh, signage up lately about just to um, let people know that they shouldn't be picking from there and as a result of the uh, lockdown we actually decided to to make sure that some of the beds that were right along the pathway actually did have quite quickly produced crops that people could just take Um, you know we saw a need in the community so we responded to it in in that way Uh, with a collaboration from an urban farm actually who was better at growing seedlings than we we are so it's all, it's all quite collaborative, and that's the thing that I've learned in my time with Innermost, is that there's a whole lot of people out there with all this amazing knowledge, but they're so willing to share it. I mean, if you're, if you're starting on this journey as a volunteer because you're interested, well, of course, you're, you know, there's just this community that just does want to share and learn together. So I, mean, I came along to the gardens to learn a bit more about permaculture and permaculture design. I did not realise that I would end up being a composting expert but I kind of feel these days that I that I am which is a strange place for me to find myself really <laughs> my kids laugh at me every time I come home the way that I smell of compost 
Compost is a great thing. I emptied my compost bin yesterday and it's mucky, but it's very satisfying. It is very satisfying, that's right. And just to sort of see the product that comes out of these bins after a couple of months and um, putting it on the beds and just sort of seeing all that goodness going back into the soil is just, yeah, it's a lovely circle. So where are you going to go with your research next, apart from measuring the actual output of carbon dioxide and methane and other things from the compost here? Well, I'm still keen to figure out better solutions for production of food in urban areas, right? So how to occupy spaces that are unoccupied or bad bad occupied, right? And um, I'm still keen to compare the different modes of production of food in urban areas, right? In terms of community gardens, I would like to insist and think about ways to have composting as good as this one in other parts of the city. So this is for me is if we are unable to develop, because it's very hard to develop an urban farm or any other sort of production of food within the urban area, it's very complex especially because there is a the price of land, right? Land is very expensive and if you decide that you have an urban farm, you're never going to pay back the land which is the biggest problem for not having commercial farms within urban areas, right? But if you find a way and if you decide that we are not thinking about economics, we think about environment, so this calculation doesn't make any sense anymore, so we have something more important than the value of land, which is reduce our environmental impact. So if you are aiming to do that, I'm keen to find a ways to do that, and I'm also very keen to confirm that this is a great example of composting and publish around this group composting in here and and have that as a showcase hey this is what you should be doing everywhere in the city right because if you think properly these things are all connected right so the story of this garden is like that so it's a group of people that start in here and then they have a composting that after 10 years they have to remade it and then remade it and now it's better and then now have an expert so that's the story Right? That's the story. That's a successful story. It's hard to find stories like that. It's actually very, very hard. So the idea is scientifically back the thing up. Because this is another problem with community gardens. Some community gardens, they make claims that they cannot prove. Right? We are doing that. So perhaps you are not doing that much. Right? And here we can do that, which is great. And that, that was the thrust of the project that blistered as a summer scholar last year. It was being able to make claims but back them up when we're talking about the, the value that we bring to the community. Cause I, and I think, just picking up on your point, yes, I think it would be great to be able to have composting facilities in smaller pockets all around the city. And that would be great from an environmental point of view, but I also think those sort of unintended social byproduct will be really um, interesting and rewarding as well so again it's one of those things that you don't want to lose sight of because that's where the beauty happens you sort of see it in random permaculture garden design too it's sort of like it's that that pocket where these two plants that you hadn't really expected to um, cohabitate nicely with each other just actually just really enhance each other and I think that if you put that on a community level too there's a whole lot of things that you can have unintended amazing consequences from from these kinds of activities. My point of view, my, my scientific research is about environmental impact and I also of course recognize the social point of the garden right and this is a good case, but what I'm after, what I'm interested is the environmental thing, right? So my idea is to use examples like that 
and have measured the benefits of it and try to put in other parts of the city. So how's your research getting on? Yeah, well, it was affected by COVID, right? So we cannot have international trips anymore. So one of the biggest things about this research was visiting international examples and different ways to produce food in urban areas. So because we cannot travel and because I'm an architect and I have interest in the design of things and how people react in the space, we're going to start a new step of this research, which will be documenting them. So we're going to have 360 cameras, we're going to put in gardens, so we're going to have 360 videos of the garden so people can move around and see what's happening. And we're going to use drones to actually take aerial photos of, of this garden. So this is the next step of the research. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. And this is not just gardens in New Zealand? In the beginning, yes, only in New Zealand because like, we cannot go away, right? So I'm going to aim into, I'm going to start in here in this garden and do a pilot in here, see how it goes. But the idea is to get important examples in every major city in New Zealand and have that all documented. So people could say, okay, let's visit a garden in Christchurch and see how it, it goes. And they have a 360 camera and they could see what they have there and the space and things like that. So next step, as soon as we can travel, who knows if I have uh, funding for that. I would like to, that, to do that in other gardens in other countries too. Thanks, Fabricio. Fabricio Kika is an architect at Victoria University of Wellington and compost queen Chris Montgomery is a member of the Innermost Community Gardens core group. There's a link to the garden's Facebook page on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kei te whakarongo mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, I suspect most of us have visited the beach this summer. But not everyone has been at the beach to swim or relax. For Joe Bonner and the team at Coastlands Plant Nursery in Whakatane, a beach visit is usually hard work. That's because they're in the business of growing coastal plants, hundreds of thousands of plants such as spinifex and pingao. Late last year, Joe talked with RNZ journalist Caroline Tuckett about the challenges and rewards of restoring coastal dunes. The most important thing about the dune plants or the four dune species is their ability to fix the dunes after a large storm event. So spinifex will naturally grow towards the sea and when there's been a large storm event, the, the vigorous runners, which trail off over the erosion scarps, they then encourage sand to build up around them, and then slowly over time that sand comes back onto the beach, and usually around the plants, the plants have tiny little hairs which trap the sand, and uh, as the sand flies past, it gets knocked off and dropped around the plants, and so that's how it builds up over time. So spinifex particularly is really good at regenerating the nice, easy slope of a beach that everybody's used to after a storm event. Both Spinifex and Pingao are our fall guys, really. They're the ones that take the brunt of the storms. Uh, They're the only two species that do that in New Zealand, and Pingao in particular, you don't see that so often. It's predated by rabbits, and it would have been throughout New Zealand 
two or three hundred years ago, but over time it has slowly disappeared and there's only small remnants now left. But where there is active replanting programs and coast care groups, you'll see that uh, there are more patches as people are working to um, bring them back to the beach. They're not as vigorous as the spinifex. The spinifex is the one that does the heavy work, but the pingao is vitally important as well in that ecosystem. A more common site on sand dunes around the country today is introduced marum grass. Marum grass was used 100 years ago because it was palatable for stock to eat. And of course we used a lot of our beaches for droving stock all around New Zealand because the bush was so thick. And in doing that, we've degraded our beaches to the point where we've lost some of those indigenous species, you know, right there on the foredune. Uh, the marum grass and other plants that are found on the beaches, the exotic ones, they don't bind the sand. So in a storm event, they're simply washed away, break off and wash away. And there's no natural regeneration quickly to protect that beach and inevitably protect the people and property in behind that beach. But while the native sandbinders, Spinifex and Pingao, do a great job in holding and rebuilding sand dunes, life in modern-day New Zealand is not easy for them. The seeds are being eaten by uh, introduced rodents and also uh, introduced birds. And quite often we're on, we're on the beaches collecting seed. There'll be flocks of sparrows in front of us just harvesting the seed. And, and here in the nursery, uh, sparrows are one of our big problems. They must be able to smell the seed from a mile off. So that, that's an issue for why it's not naturally growing back on the dunes and germinating. The other issue is the fertility of the seed. And in the last 30 years we've been growing it, we've noticed a decline in the number of fertile seeds per spinifex seed head. So that's the iconic spinifex seed head that you see rolling down the beaches in the middle of summer. So per head, you know, we used to get at least 50 to 80 good seeds from a hedge Nowadays, it can be you know as little as fifteen from some beaches, and we think the main factors for this could be the changes in the prevailing winds at the crucial time of pollination, but also spinifex has male and female plants, and the proximity of the male plants to the females is really important. And it does seem to be over a period of time that they have communities. So the the male will have a large community and then the females will have a large community down the beach. And if they're pollinated by wind, and if we have the wrong winds at the wrong time, maybe they're offshore or onshore instead of blowing up and down the beach, this can cause fertility issues or pollination issues and then ultimately we end up with less seeds per head. But as a basic rule, west coast beaches have way more pollinated seed per head than east coast beaches. And also beaches that are wider, they have uh, more breadth of spin effects they seem to have more seeds. The best seed in the country is actually Foxton Beach.
when they're growing in the nursery, you can easily see those differences. We can have east and west coast spinifex alongside each other and you would think it was a different plant species. Each year, horticulturalist Joe Bonner and the team at Coastlands Plants in Whakatane grow 200,000 spinifex plants and 100,000 pingao plants. They're the largest supplier in the country and their plants are used by coast care groups around the North Island in June revegetation programs. The process begins with seed collection and Joe says it's important to collect seed that's local to each beach. Pingao seed is ready first and that can be ready from any time the second week of December through to the second week of January. Different times, of course, all over New Zealand, depending on how much heat the beach has had. Quite often, Northland and the Bay of Plenty are the first beaches to come ripe, and then the others follow suit down the country. We've found over the years the best time for seed collection is the week before Christmas, because we think that everybody is at the mall then, buying presents and there's nobody on the beach and it's fantastic but inevitably it's the first few weeks of January for the spinifex seed and that's when everybody's at the beach and we've waited for over an hour trying to get into some of these beaches and also just getting down onto the beach people think wow that'd be a great job but no, you're carrying, you know, four or five bags with you at a time, paper bags, you know, stuffed down your front and in your backpack and, and so forth. It's hot, sticky work. You're in the back dunes, so the sand is really loose and soft. And it's also incredibly hot back there because you've got the glare of the sand as well. Peach goers think that we're doing some sort of rubbish collection and we'll have people come up to us and ask us or give us rubbish and I have to explain, no, I'm sorry, we're doing seed collecting. Um, but our biggest problem is arriving at a beach just before a cyclone, knowing you have to get the seed off and then finding it's not quite ready. And then, of course, you've got to make another trip because you just can't pick it. And the biggest seeds that drop off first are the most fertile, so they're the important ones to get. So they are the ones that have usually disembarked and are rolling down the beach at a great speed of knots. And I have been known to chase after a few just because they were, you know, lovely big heads and I knew that they would be the ones that would be able to give us the quantities of seed that we need. When the seed's ready, you can stick your hand in underneath it and it just lifts off. So a full paper rubbish sack will make roughly around 500 plants worth and it needs to be well-pushed, stuffed seed. Having braved the summer beachgoers, the collectors send their seed to the nursery where the time-consuming process of germinating and growing begins. Jo says there are plenty of problems to overcome. First of all, you need three good seeds to make one plant. So you have to put three seeds into the hole to make, you know, to even get one of those to germinate. And then it's kind of a hit and miss game for germination. We can have, depending on the area, of course, if we have good viability within the seed or not. 
again, Foxton Seed does really well. And then some of the other beaches around New Zealand are always notoriously poor at germinating. The watering has to be monitored. Also the temperature. Once we get over a certain temperature, the, the spinifex won't germinate. Once we're under a certain temperature, the spinifex won't germinate. So there's a real crucial time for us when we've got to get all the seed sown. Otherwise, it won't be ready for the following year, no matter what you do. It's fascinating, and no year is the same. And even after 30 years, there's always something that trips you up. We've had our um, roofs ripped off by cyclones, you know, just as germination's happening. There's constantly something that uh, Mother Nature is throwing at you. And that sounds kind of terrible, but it is exciting at the same time because you're at the elements. You're never quite sure how you, your season's going to go. And you may have one good season out of three or four, and it's just enough to lift your spirits and keep you doing the job. Jo says it's always rewarding to return to a beach where a local coast care group has been at work and where her plants are thriving. I call them my babies, and when we get to go to a beach that you know that you've helped restore and you can see them growing, and you can see the dottles running in and out of them and people on the beaches. And it's just neat to know that you're doing something of benefit to New Zealand. Thanks, Joe. Joe Bonner is at Coastlands Plant Nursery in Fakatane. The nursery grows plants for about 40 beaches and seeds from this summer won't be ready for planting until next April. And we can all do our bit by not walking or driving on June plants. They are easily damaged. Want to listen to tonight's stories again? Head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Why not subscribe to us as a podcast? And keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. That's the show. I'm Alison Balance and I'll catch you at the same time next week. Paul Marier 